And we're going to roll up our sleeves and dig into Revelation once again. Um, as we continue through the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, uh, we're reminded of uh, the fact that Christians are charged to live faithfully in an environment that is not conducive to living faithfully, right? Uh, if it were easy to live faithfully in a world, if the world was like, wow, Christianity is a great idea, uh, we wouldn't need a book like the book of Revelation. But uh, to be clear, the book of Revelation is not um, a book to help you figure out whether the Mayans were right, uh, to figure out uh, when exactly the world is going to end, um, how exactly it's going to end, which politicians can we decipher from 666 are the ones that you don't vote for. Really, the book of Revelation is about encouraging the Christian to live faithfully in a world that is antagonistic toward that faithfulness. And we see it more and more. I hesitate to bring this up because I don't know a ton about it, but back on July 5th, a movie came out called Sound of Freedom. I think that's what it's called. Have you been hearing the swirling controversies around this movie? The, the basis of the movie is uh, a man who is trying to uh, rescue children from commercialized sexual exploitation. Now, if there were a topic that you think both sides of the political aisle can rally around and go, yes, we need to help save these kids, you would think that would be it. You see it on CNN and different news sources, how they're like, yeah, 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 it's a problem, but all these Trump voting, right-wing Christian conservative people, don't they have anything better to do? And you're just looking at it like, what? That doesn't make any sense. Unless you read a book like the book of Revelation, you're like, oh, Babylon. That's where you live. One particular article I read was a Rolling Stone article, so you know it's legit. Um, <laughs> was written with such disdain. You could tell that the, the person said, I showed up to this movie and you got all these people with gray hair, these older people, these boomers. I kid you not sitting there coughing throughout the movie. <sighs> At certain scenes, they shout amen, stupid Christians. Made fun of the, the character that Jim Caviezel was playing for being Mormon. And just writing like, ah, oh, this stupid movie, only stupid people would believe this stuff is happening. And then the last paragraph of the article, why don't we pay attention to the stuff that matters, okay? Like housing and the police. We live in a world where values are not derived from an objective place. They're derived from something in here, and I want what I want. And the good things I want to pursue, that's what I'll pursue. And the things that I don't want to pursue, it's not enough for me to not pursue it. When other people pursue it, I will mock them, scoff at them, persecute them. How old is that? In order to understand the book of Revelation, and especially this whole deal with Babylon, which we'll unpack in a minute, you need to know the story of two brothers, not the prodigal son. That's a different one. Related. But this is the, the more original story of Cain and Abel. And you remember that Cain 
offered a sacrifice to God, but you could tell he's not interested in sacrificing to God because he didn't bring his best. He didn't bring what he was supposed to. Abel did, and God was pleased with Abel's sacrifice. And do you think God just, you know, just leaned into Cain like, hey, your sacrifice was so bad I hate you. He's like, hey, do better. <laughs> he's a good father. Even to someone who disrespects him with a, a, a meh sacrifice. I don't want to worship you. I'm just doing this because I have to. And he coaches Cain, doesn't he? Sin crouches, wants to master you. You have to master it. Now that gives Cain an opportunity to see, okay, here's the standard. Abel's not better than me. Abel just met the standard that was laid out. Abel didn't make it up. He didn't come up with such a great idea. God was like, oh, great idea. Here's God's standard. Abel matched it. Hey, man, you can match it. Just match it. Sin wants you to not match it. Sin wants you to hate that standard and go do something else. But you have to master that, Cain. Now, rather than Cain going, you know what? No, I don't want to live up to that standard. He hates the guilt and the shame of having that standard looming over him. So he kills the standard. And he expresses that by murdering his brother. Why murder the brother? Why not just be your discontented, horrible self in your own little corner of the world? Why kill Abel? Because it's not enough to disdain the standard that I'm being asked to live into, but I also hate those who live into it. That is the world. That is Babylon expressed through the prostitute who rides the beast. Turn with me to Revelation. We're in chapter 18 today. Revelation chapter 18 today, but last time we covered 17, and we were introduced to these characters, some of them for the first time. The prostitute is a sort of a, a new one, and the prostitute on her head is the name Babylon. And then she rides a beast. We saw the beast back in chapter 13. So this is just recap. If you want more on this, you weren't here for it, you can go on our website, go back to Revelation 13, go back to Revelation 17. But the prostitute, I argued, is basically woman folly. She represents infidelity against God. Here's God's standard that we were created for, and then we cheat on him, right? We're unfaithful to that standard. We want to do things our own way. That's what she represents. And more than that, as woman folly in the, in the book of Proverbs She represents the allure of doing that. Why work so hard to do this? You could just do this. Why walk this way when you can walk this way? Look at all these people walking this way. They're doing fine. You remember woman folly in Proverbs? Hey, no one's going to find out. My husband's away. She's laying out all these positives and diminishing consequences for the young man in that picture to veer off the road and go to her house. That's the pull of the world. The beast that she rides represents the push of the world, which is the persecution. In other words, the prostitute is there to to lure you into infidelity against God. But if you resist that, then I'll bite you and devour you with my beast. That's the push. The beast, of course, we learned in Revelation 13, represents the dragon's human employments in the world. The dragon is the devil, Satan is not omnipresent. He uses people, systems, governments, rulers, wealthy people, influencers to 
put pressure on Christians to do it. If he can't get you with the pull, he'll try to get you with the push. And so the prostitute riding the beast represents all of the ways in which Satan uses, especially the the great uh, cities of the world that are uh, urging evil, suppressing truth, and influencing the world toward that, toward evil and suppressing truth. Any great city is Babylon. It's the world system that wants Christians to not be Christian. And if you remain Christian, we're going to punish you for it. Now, everyone experiences that on different levels. And we still have a, a kind of freedom today. But you, any of you who have read, ever read any history book or been in any history class, how does wholesale slaughter of people begin? It begins in the classroom. It begins in the theaters. It begins in even the churches sometimes, where little by little you start to disdain certain people for being old, for being conservative, for being gray-haired, for coughing or whatever. It starts with the disdain. And when the disdain is in place, now you can press the attack. Our country is not far from it. And so we all live in Babylon, and the book of Revelation wants you to remain faithful because God is like, I'm not going to pull you out of Babylon. It's not like you get saved and I pull you out. You get saved and you stay there like in exile. Your citizenship is in heaven, but you have to live out your You have to run the race, so to speak, in Babylon. And it won't be easy with the push and the pull on both sides. And so this text is given to us to encourage Christians by reminding us that Babylon looks powerful, Babylon looks massive, but it will go down. It won't remain. So hang in there because you will remain. God's kingdom will remain. But right now, God's kingdom looks small. It looks easily snuffed out. But it won't. It it won't be. It'll remain, and the rebellious Babylon will be put down. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read all of chapter 18. We'll back up and just take it in a few chunks. So Revelation chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. John writes, After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, 
For in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore, cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses, and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these waters who gained wealth from her will stand far, far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all, those tr- whose, and all whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints, and of all who have been slain on earth. There's a lot to unpack there, but don't get lost in the details. Christian, live faithfully even in the midst of Babylon, because Babylon will fall. That's the point. And you can see this right in the opening. This sure fall of Babylon is because Babylon represents rebellion. Babylon represents, it's the epitome of rebellion against God. And it, it begins, the mighty voice of the angel begins by saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, past tense. So this is so sure to happen that this, Predictive prophecy is put in past tense terms. That's the sureness of it. Why? Because it's become the dwelling place of the unclean. It is where uncleanness lives. So the word dwelling is used one time. Haunt, uh, the, the noun, not the verb. The haunt, the place where evil things hang out, is used three times. It's described as detestable. But three times it's described as unclean. Uh, this is a haunt for what? Every unclean spirit, unclean bird, unclean and detestable beast. That harkens back to Leviticus, where the word unclean is used almost a hundred times to describe, hey guys, uh, you know, you are supposed to be different than the nations, and so I'm going to give you laws that refer to things as clean or unclean, and you have to stick to the clean things. You remember that? So There were various ones. Touching a dead body would make you unclean, so you could become unclean, or you can eat something unclean, like pork was unclean. Now, in the New Testament, we realize that those were symbolic 
of an inner cleanness and uncleanness. And, if, and when Jesus said, I've, I've come to fulfill that, that inner part, we don't need the outer law anymore. But that's what this is referring to. Oh, remember all those unclean birds and all those unclean beasts, those things that would keep you from worshiping God if you, if you use them or touch them or ate them? That's what Babylon is about. Babylon enjoys the delicacies of the things that are unclean. And they love it. And they cook it up and they serve it. And they invite you to enjoy it with them. But it, it, it bars you from God. It bars you from worship, just like the unclean laws in the Old Testament. And so unclean versus clean is about light versus dark. It's about atoned versus guilty, redeemed versus lost, in versus out. So it's not a ritualistic uncleanness. It's a, it's a moral uncleanness as it continues in verse 3. The nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. They've committed, the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her and they've grown rich from the power of her luxurious living it's the chasing of wealth it's the casting off of moral restraints and uh, the nations are drunk on the wine of the immorality the unfaithfulness to god they're drunk on it they, they like it they love it it has consequences but they get over it just like people in the world who plan to get drunk on the weekend the trash does it feel good in the morning no but then what do they do the next week i can't wait as a converted person you're like man that's dumb but some of you were there and that's babylon that's what babylon is it doesn't make sense and there are things that are not great about it but they ignore those and they focus on power luxury verse three and position the kings the merchants are the the CEOs, the, the owners, the employers, the sellers, the buyers, the traders. And they see profit from immorality. So all this immorality representing cheating on God is led by kings of the earth who've decided to go with her. And people under those kings, like the merchants, they follow suit. And we, we all experience that pull. It's a pull toward immorality, luxury, comfort look at everything they have faithfulness doesn't seem to pay off but unfaithfulness looks like it pays off and that's how they amass their following but saints saints are to come out verse four then i heard another voice from heaven saying come out of her my people lest you take part in her sins lest you share in her plagues and i think about what it's what it's doing there the call is, come out of her, not come out of her because you're partaking in her sins. Come out of her because if you don't, then you will partake of her sins. And the, the point I want to make there is there's a discipline of getting away from Babylon. There's a discipline of being separate, clean versus unclean. There's a, there's a, there's a way of a, a, a positive discipline of coming out from her that if you don't practice that positive discipline, then the negative thing is going to happen. You're going to start partaking in her sins. Does that make sense? In other words, you have to focus on the uh, habit, the discipline of being separate. And once you lose that discipline, you'll just fall into the pull 
of the world. Come out of her so that you don't partake in her sins, so that you don't share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven. Now, when you look at a city, one of the ways that cities one-up each other is the height of their buildings, right? Look at that building. Oh, my goodness, that one. Look at it so high. Oh, we've got the tallest one. No, we just went up to you. And he's going, don't, when you look at a city, don't look at the buildings. It's, the sin is heaping. That's what's reaching as high as heaven. And I've, I've got a limit. God doesn't tell us what the limit is, but when the limit is hit, final judgment comes. So he's like, so, so look at cities with spiritual eyes and don't partake in the luxury stuff because if you pull back the curtain and look behind that, actually sins are being heaped up. And you don't want to be a part of that because you don't want to be a part of the consequences. It looks glorious. It looks luxurious. It looks easy. But it doesn't end well, and you need to come out from them. So if you don't practice participation, Christian, if you don't practice separation, you'll end up practicing participation. You need to be focused on the, the coming out part and be diligent to protect your lives, to protect holiness, and to not be swooped up into all these, uh, the, the allure of the great prostitute called Babylon. Because, verse 5, not only are her sins heaped as high as heaven, but God remembers her iniquities. It looks like God sometimes isn't paying attention to the atrocities in this world, but he is, and he takes count he doesn't always do something right now in the moment, but he's, he knows it, and he remembers it. And there will be a time where God will repay. Verse 6, pay her back as she herself has paid back others. Repay her double for her deeds. Mix a po- double portion for her in the cup she mixed. It's her fault. She mixed the cup. Now she's going to drink it. That's the imagery there. The judgment she gets is the judgment she deserves. Now, it could be a tripping hazard as you're reading through it, and it says double. That doesn't sound fair. She did this, and then she gets double the consequence. I, I don't think that's what it means. I think here, double doesn't mean twice as much. Double means in duplicate. Now, let me just quickly explain the difference, because Revelation tells us God's justice is faithful and true. And I think it's important to understand that. Um, but uh, this word can, could be used as twice as much, but it could be used like uh, when you see a mother introduce you to her daughter, who's now a young adult, let's say, and you haven't seen them in forever, or maybe never, and you go, oh my goodness, she's your double. The mom's probably not going, how is she twice me? What do you mean, wait? No, no. I mean, she looks like you, right? She's a duplicate of you, not that she's twice as much as you, Right? And we wouldn't sit there unpacking it. We would just go, oh, double is used that way. Now, how do we know he's using double this way? Duplicate, not twice as much. We'll look at the near context. Verse 6. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others. Okay, so the, the sins that she did, as she did those, that's the judgment that she gets. And then you see that again in verse 7. As she glorified herself, give her this like measure. Okay, so it's... It's eye for eye. God's not breaking his own rules. It's tooth for tooth. But she's heaped up so much that she's deserving of this cup that she mixed, poured back on herself. But God's justice is faithful and true. He won't leave it hanging. It will all come tumbling down in the end. 
And if it seems harsh, you look at verse 7 and 8, and you're reminded that Babylon represents this sort of brazen arrogance against God. She glorifies herself. She lives in luxury. And she says in her heart at the end of verse 7, I sit as a queen. I am no widow. And I'm not going to see mourning, M-O-U-R. There's nothing for me to grieve over. And never will I grieve anything in terms of a consequence of what I do. That's arrogant. I'm going to break the rules. And you know what? There's not going to be any consequences. I like break, rule breaking. And I'm not, nothing's going to happen to me. So the reason for the plagues, verse 8, is for that arrogance. For this reason... Her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine. She will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Uh, God don't play that, as we would say growing up. He sees it. He doesn't allow it to persist forever. And it's that brazen arrogance that causes God to judge her in an instant. In an instant. Single day, verse 8. In a single hour, verse 10. That single hour comes up again in verse 17 and verse 19. It's like that. The heaping has been going for a long time, but judgment is just going to be bam, and it's over, and then it's over. For this reason, her arrogance, claiming to be a queen, claiming that she'll never have to mourn over anything, and that's why there's such a long section on how much loss she's actually going to mourn. If you're reading through, like, oh, my goodness, the cinnamon, the frankincense, the myrrh, the instruments, it's just a long way of laying it thick. You like music? You're not going to have music. You like parties? No parties for you. You like weddings? No weddings. You like feasts? No feasts. You'll be feasted on. You're not going to be participating in a feast. You like luxury? You like wealth? You like scarlet? You like purple? You like all these colors? You like all these clothes? You like shopping? No more shopping. It's all over. All the things we distract ourselves with, all the things that we comfort ourselves with as we ignore God's laws will be taken away and all that there's left is God's law and justice will be served not for his church for Babylon and so he makes it explicitly clear it's her arrogance it's brazen uh, she casts off restraints she she won't take any coaching from God just like Cain and for this reason she experiences all the loss of the things that she revels in now. So here's the point. Faithful saints need to abstain from the immorality of the world because it's a path to ultimate ruin. The encouragement, saint, is to remember how the city is going to end. So don't be a part of her. You live in it, but don't be a part of it. Don't be a citizen of it. It's going to come down. And look at all the weeping there's going to be. All this weeping that from the kings and the merchants regarding the fact that there's no more power, there's no more wealth, but the, the saints rejoice. So as you're reading this long section on the kings of the earth, verse 9, uh, and then the merchants of the earth, verse 11, so these are the powerful people that represent the world, and they are weeping, wailing, uh, they realize there's no more cargo, there's nothing more to buy, to sell, all the materials, all the, the frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, all the fruit that they longed for is gone, verse 14. The merchants, again, verse 15, 
They say, alas, the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. It's gone. All the shipmasters, verse, end of verse 17, all the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea stood far off and they cried, wasn't that such a great city? There's going to be a lot of recollection in, in hell about how great things were. But for the saint, it's the opposite. Man, things were tough living in Babylon, but the new Jerusalem is awesome. I mean, the new earth is great. It's the, it's the reverse. That's why in verse 20, saints have the opposite reaction. They don't wail and weep. It says, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. The saints aren't rejoicing because their wealth is gone and we're just being vindictive, but because... Babylon used wealth at the expense of righteousness and at the expense of the righteous. Babylon, the big bully, who pulls, and if you don't give into the pull, pushes, is finally taken out. And we're not supposed to go, aw, poor Babylon. Just like if you're watching a movie and this wicked villain, you know, gets finally killed in the end by the hero, you're not supposed to go, aw, man. Why not rehab him? You're like, yes, great movie. And if it doesn't happen, you're like, that movie was terrible. The villain won, right? And that's why I started with the example I did. Because when we kind of cozy up to Babylon, we're like, eh, they're not that bad. I have friends that are unbelievers, and they're not, they're not that bad. If I remind you something like commercialized uh, traffic, of children for sexual abuse and then Babylon's line is don't be a conspiracy theorist it's just a sign as as a society as a society we murder our babies we physically mutilate our children parents abusing them by confusing them about their gender their, their identity or places that hurt and harm their bodies without the parents even knowing. That's the society we live in. Now that's the worst, some of the worst end of it, but there's a spectrum and you see things moving along and getting darker and that helps you to appreciate verse 20. Like I, I, I get rejoicing over that. I get rejoicing that having to live faithfully to God in the midst of Babylon is over. That's something to rejoice over, that that will finally happen. In the meantime, we hope that people convert and we want to spread truth and love and we open an invite to the table, right? But we know that the world and its corruption and its immorality is detestable and does need to come to an end. And that's not a, oh, shucks in the end. That's a point of rejoicing in the end. And of course, it says God has given judgment for you against her. Why? Because not just the pull, also the push. Now, we abstain from this system of infidelity. We abstain from it. 
because the judgment is coming and it's irreversible. Look at verse 21. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, see how this millstone is sinking to the bottom of the sea? That's implied. So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. Uh, you can look this up on the internet, millstone. Uh, there will be a large round stone base. And then on top of that, another huge round stone with a hole cut on one portion of it with a sort of a handle. And you put grain in between the stones. And just the weight of the top stone would grind the grain as you turn the stones. Does that make sense? Okay. Now take that huge stone, lug it on your shoulder, okay, and walk over to, you know, an ocean side somewhere and plop it into the depths of the ocean. You're not going to catch it. A diver's not going to go get it, okay? It's, it's at the bottom, and that's where it's going to stay forever. It's an irreversible judgment that Babylon won't come back from. Then lays it on thick again, verse 21, the sound of the harpists, the musicians, the flute players, the trumpeters. I mean, we're going to enjoy that forever, but they won't. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. The light of the lamp won't shine anymore. The voice of the bridegroom and the bride, people rejoicing, right, feasting, having parties, celebrating marriage. That's not going to happen anymore. Why? For the merchants and the great ones of the earth and all the nations were deceived by the sorcery of the prostitute. There's a supernatural force at work, a supernatural force behind the scenes, where when you read articles like what I opened up with, and you go, huh? How does somebody get there? Sorcery. It's not a logical way to get there. It's wickedness. It's deceit. And sorcery there, I think, stands for that supernatural way that the, 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 the world tricks people, deceives people, pulls people into their deception. So there's your pull. Verse 24, there's your push. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. Because if my tactic to deceive you doesn't work, I'll kill you. That's Babylon. So verse 23, there's the pull. Verse 24, there's the push. And just using our example of the uh, trafficking of children, it represents both, doesn't it? How does somebody get to the point where they are comfortable watching children be tortured for sexual gratification? Well, it starts by something prior to that not being enough. Some other sexual deviation before that probably not being enough and you keep pushing it and you keep pushing it and you click on the next thing, you click on the next thing until before you know it, nothing's satisfying you anymore. The, deep, the hole just keeps getting deeper the drug has to get heavier. That's the pull. Well, if you stand up and start to speak out about it, you get harassed for being a conspiracy theorist. There's the push. And brothers and sisters, this pull and this push exist in the city. That's what makes up where we live. 
as Christians on this earth before the return of Christ. And as I thought about this, especially that sorcery piece and remembering that the dragon is behind the prostitute and the beast. People may accuse you of being a conspiracy theorist. You know, there's a kernel of truth to that. I may say, I, I don't believe in a conspiracy theory, but I believe in a conspiracy theology that behind the human employments, behind the kings, behind the merchants, behind the great cities of the earth, there is an agenda And there is someone pulling strings, and his name is Satan. And brothers and sisters, you can't read the book of Revelation, and you believe it or don't believe it. But none of this, well, there's general this and general that, but if if you read the Bible, believe what it's telling you, from Genesis to Revelation, right? You have this behind the scenes, supernatural sorcery going on. Not only that, we get into plenty of trouble ourselves as humans, but there is a spiritual warfare behind the scenes that conspires. That's what the word conspiracy comes from. They conspire to deceive you, to deceive people. But those who bear the name of God are not deceived. We recognize the pull when we see it. We recognize the push when we see it. And I want to leave you with two thoughts to be utterly clear. The first thought is this text is not saying, depending on how well you abstain, that'll determine whether you're saved or not. Because notice, the people who abstain are the saints. The people who abstain, we've seen numerous times, bear the name of God on them. They've been called out, and that's why they abstain. They don't abstain enough, and then they're called out, which is a difficult thing to unpack. But as I've mentioned before, it is not true that works will get you to Jesus but it is true that Jesus will get you to work. And we don't get to claim Christ and not abstain. Claim Christ and not be disciplined when you're alone at your computer as to what you click or don't click on. Claim Christ, but you can kind of be unfaithful to your spouse. You claim Christ, and if that claim is true, he shapes you and fashions you. Not that you're perfect, but you pursue holiness. You are concerned with pursuing holiness. And sometimes even in the church, when one person is pursuing holiness, another person uh, doesn't like that standard, and so we mock and make fun of that person for having that standard. Let that person have that standard if, if what they're doing is trying to pursue holiness. And that they're not being judgmental toward you and constantly putting their finger in their face. They're just trying to live their lives holy. We should encourage that and rethink whether our standard is as healthy as it should be, which leads me to the second and final thing I want to close with. When we think of things like child abuse and sex trafficking, we go, man, that is just so detestable. That's one end of a spectrum. It's the wide end of this funnel, but way over here, there's this beginning stuff. And so when the text says, hey, come out from her, it might not be telling you to stop looking at this stuff or engaging in it but what is what are the precursors to that that we might be allowing in our life we might be getting too comfortable with too entertained by that we need to go you know what that's that's ugly that's ugly because in its greater forms and its more mature forms it's this stuff and it's detestable so we want to be concerned with God's standard, not in order to become saved, 
But if we are believers, that means our heart has been changed, right? Jeremiah 31, God has written the law on our hearts. It's already in our hearts, and so we, we, our hearts pump with this desire to obey God and understand what it is that he's teaching us is moral, immoral, clean, unclean, and we don't let the city define moral standards for us. Don't let them tell you what's safe for your kids, what's right for your marriage, what's moral or immoral. Get it from God's word and ask him for grace to live into it because it is hard. At every step of the way, there'll be a push or a pull or both. But by God's grace, we can stay faithful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word that you gave John these visions to write it down so that all these centuries later we can continue to benefit from its encouragement. Um, We leave here probably with heavy hearts for the world. We do have many friends, cousins, maybe even spouses that are still caught up in the deceit of the world and we don't want them to end in a place where they're weeping and wailing. Uh, We pray that you would use us, Lord, to be good witnesses, uh, lampstands that shine bright, um, and that we would recognize that if we cower back and if we retreat, if we um, give in and compromise, that we become less of a lamp. And uh, that's, that's no way to win anybody to Christ. So help us to be bold, help us to stand firm, not to be... um, Uh, contrarian, but to be uh, in the position to offer hope uh, that is in the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who we know. And Father, help us to be encouraged by the fact that as bad as the world may get or continue to get, it's not the end of the story, um, that uh, you are faithful and just and true. You see all the suffering of little children. You see the suffering of your saints around the world. And uh, you promise that you will make things right in the end. Help us to be patient, long-suffering. Help us to continue to run this race uh, with patience and by your grace. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.